Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play Our next our guest is considered a dear friend and also a teacher and researcher of landscape architect at Queensland University of Technology. He lectures at the Technical University of Berlin, Yale University, University of Canberra, University of Kassel and University of New South Wales. Greg has received several high-profile research scholarships, 11 work-related works awards, and is about to publish his next book entitled Transforming Public Space Through Play with Rot Ledge. He is the founder of Urban Synergies Group, an urban thinking voice for the UN Habitat and fellow co-founder and director of the Australian Institute of Play. Today, we're going to be talking about the state of play as a standard, what makes a good playground, and a philosophical look at urban health and well-being. A big welcome into the studio, Dr. Greg Muse. We'll start off where we start off with all guests, a little walk down memory lane, a bit of storytelling. Where did you play as a child? It's always a good one to start with, isn't it? Um, yeah, where did I start? You can, I can put it back, you know, do you want early childhood or <laughs> which stages? I mean, I would probably give you a, uh, probably an earlier-ish version. Um, look, uh, I spent most of my time, I, I grew up in Germany to begin with, probably, you know, figured it out by my accent now. And, what accent? um, what accent? yeah, that's it. Yeah. Don't mention <laughs> <it>. <laughs> uh, the, So uh, I grew up just south of Berlin and, um, in a small town and spent quite a bit of time on the weekends at, often out in the country with my grandparents. Um, and they had a, a lovely big estate and a massive oak forest in front of the house. So I spent considerable time of my early childhood playing in, um, that forest. Um, but also, because Germany, you know, weather is not always that great. Um, so I spent quite a bit of time actually um, indoors, but mostly at the attic, you know, the old smoky, you know, um, dusty attic, you know, crawling yeah. around and creating imaginative worlds up there. So it's probably one so of the... Very, very different because we don't have those major seasons. But the what I see the similarity between Australia and there is that need to be that secluded and independence. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Self yeah. And how did that, what's the leap between what happened between then and mm. your passion to strike finding your realm and finding your feet in landscape architecture? Well, you know. To cut it short, probably it's the fine art of never growing up, right? <laughs> <laughs> and just keep true to your spirit, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then uh, how you can utilize that passion in a most useful way and you know externalize that energy where you can help and facilitate. Yeah, yeah. And you've had a, a bit of generational, generational inspiration, inspiration from your grandfather, from grandfather the musician. Mm. Oh, 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 flashback. <laughs> pull, pulling intel. out my intel now. Um, <laughs> tell us about that. It's a really lovely story. Oh, uh, well, um, so a good part of my family, they were uh, quite artistic always. So in, in particular that my great-grandpa, he was uh, quite into music. Uh, he was a bit of conductor and uh, had an chamber orchestra and so on and um and then he um you know, impacted a bit of the, the creative part of my life not that i can actually become a good musician or anything but it more what sparked is that uh, sense of curiosity yeah. uh, and i probably expressed more in art yeah. you know given that i'm doing now and you know, working in landscape architecture and more it's more about drawings and how we can create imaginative yeah. worlds yeah. but um but as any kind of form of art right um they have they elevate the human spirit and if you were exposed or imbued to with, with that kind of energy early in your life, that definitely shapes um, who you become in that sense. Yeah, and I like what you've mentioned in your TED Talk about something along the lines of that he was so kind to everyone mm. as well. Yeah, that's right. Underlying yeah. character and that transforms into 
acts of kindness creating environments for people mm. to thrive Absolutely. a few generations Absolutely. later and also mm. that conductor a previous mm-hmm. guest is the um, director of the national league of cities in america and they're going in mm. and doing green schoolyards and and how mm. to get cities and municipalities to work together to create thriving neighborhoods and mm. his previous um, in his previous life before he got involved there, he was actually a conductor and classically oh, trained conductor. Go. So these similarities carry across the creativity, the kindness, the the conducting that is necessary to create these mm-hmm. urban environments. Mm-hmm. And then from uh, from so you studied in yeah. in Berlin, mm-hmm. and then uh-huh. what? Well, the thing is, before I studied in Berlin, I, I actually I spent time in the yep. US, and I studied art yeah. there. And then I went back to Berlin and studied planning and design, yeah. right? Uh, urban design. And then once I graduated, then off I went again into the world. Um, and that carried me pretty much from uh, the Caribbean to Central Asia, Kazakhstan, and then all the way now back to Australia. Yeah. So. And what were you doing in those countries? Uh, well, it, it somehow the, the, if there is a, a line, a narrative you'd like to follow in that regard, it's uh, the the passion for urban yeah. design and yeah. uh, trying to cr- facilitate conditions in which life can flourish, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, given that in, in the degree what I did is um, town planning, you know, probably well understood in Australia is, um, then you wonder, mm, town planning, how often do you ever ta- plan a town, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> from scratch, I mean, yes, Canberra is one, but you know, how, how often does it actually in fact yeah. happen? So it's more a matter of scale and um when you work at various different scales yeah. Yeah. then you comes back to the sense of the question of agency mm-hmm. and where can you drive perform, uh, transformative change yeah. Yeah. towards um facilitating um these nurturing conditions yeah. Yeah. is it uh, in a strategy is it in an abstract master plan or is it something where you um um have access to everyday life and transform meaning yeah. creation and I always argue what we are doing uh, within the spatial disciplines is almost we we were part of the meaning market, so we're creating meaningful lives in that sense. That's awesome. I love that the meaning creation, and I, that's why I wanted to have you on as well. It's around like every time I have a chat to you, I walk away going, I've got to find out more about that, or even get my dictionary out going, okay, I'm not sure what that word was, but I'll look it up. <laughs> Um, but I think there's so much to learn between looking at your expertise from these huge scales and then shrinking it right down the macro versus micro and shrinking it down to the realm of what we do and just the small play environments for early childhood. But you can see these similarities that carry across and across and the things like, you know, um, the nurturing strategy that you mentioned, that's integral for children's growth and then that meaning creation. So could you give us an example of nurturing strategy? Mm, that's a good one. I mean, let me start probably on a on a broader scale that more people can relate to it. So we're all born in this to, yeah. into this material world which we're surrounded with, right? So we're all agreeing this is the external world. Yeah. And then within that world, you are living and breathing a world within that world. And that is socially constructed through your parents, through your friends. Um, through your work contact, uh, text, what you make, you know, when you go to conferences. So it's a unique path, how you experience a life in this. So, and that world within the world is constantly changing because people come in and out. So it's, but it's also quite unique how life itself uh, reveals itself yeah. in front of your eyes. Yeah. And how you can engage with that world and within the world. You know, and over time, of course, we're clearly modifying the, w- broader world, but uh, more agency um, sits within this uh, smaller world within the world. Yeah? And when you go with that narrative and uh, your, your socially constructed world in there, you have a sense of agency mm-hmm. to say yes or no to certain things. Yeah? But uh, so choices you make. And then cumulatively, they shape the path um, yeah. of how you go through life. Um, that starts arguably when you come into this world. There's now science coming out that starts even before you being yeah. becoming birth. You know, because the mother has already this nurturing uh, relationship with you, and it's, it comes back always down to the environment, uh, the environment from the in- internal to the external. 
if you want to work with it kind of dialectic, but or you actually leave that behind and you say, what is it really, what makes it whole? Um, so if you have these kind of understanding that we're actually operating this socially constructed world within the larger world, that means um, we are constantly facilitating uh, and changing this socially constructed world. So often what we find is that uh, that socially constructed world uh, works adversely uh, to um, conditions where nurturing yeah. childhood can occur. Yeah. And, and that is dynamic and always constant changing. What we can look into is how, um, and that's more an existential question, how do we want to exist? And that's a question everybody can ask themselves. How do I want to exist in the world? Not tomorrow, not yesterday, but now. And through the conscious choices you make now, you could create a different kind of future. Um, and the choices we make, of course, sh you know, agree, can, should be well um, informed with evidence and all these broader science-based, but Uh, often we don't have the time to engage with that. Hence why you know yeah. podcasts are a good format to break that down in small chunks and make it digestible to the audience. So um, it's more about how we can create these nurturing conditions in the social uh, constructed world within the world uh, to achieve yeah. some better outcomes. Yeah. And they can be uh, deterministic or they can be quite open and ambiguous. And it's really a question of what kind of life-giving forces you want to give energy to. That's why I wanted to have you on. So how much of that agency have we, in recent times, are we automatically surrendering? You know, we've got so much agency over that social construct because you were saying about those choices you make all the time. But the environment in which we live in, all of these external policies, is it leaning towards us just surrendering to our environment and being a product of the environment and just giving up on our own social choices? That's a good question to ask. And, it, you know, probably that can, I can go into quite a bit Let's of depth go. in that. Um, so <laughs> there's a part of it which you can actually critique the yes. concept of free will, right? Does yes. free will exist or not? Yes. And, um, and I'll probably stick to my discipline in that sense. And I would say... Um, the environment shapes us more than you might think. Um, and everything what we're engaging when we have an mm. urban way of life, for example, mm. most everything what you see around itself is, has been some yeah. form or the other designed yeah. with, with some sort of conscious yeah. intent behind it. Um, there are certain, and these forces, they were pushed by certain powers at play. And uh, often the intent behind that They probably compete, sometimes contradict, create tensions, um, uh, or create adverse outcomes for yeah. health. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we're social species, we're geared towards convenience, have the easy life. And the easy life is not necessarily a question of upfront facing um, conflict and yeah. Uh, tensions right yeah. so if we are navigating through life yeah. the easy way so to speak yeah. um we are giving up that yeah. certain liberty yeah. so but that liberty is up to you to, to yeah. choose it every day yeah. or in every uh, decision you yeah. where you have agency over in the moment so do i eat the ice cream do i not eat the ice cream do i do i walk down the stairs do i take an elevator um do i want to Uh, spend my half an hour in the park or do I want to spend my half an hour in front of the computer yeah, eating my lunch? Absolutely. So. Um, I'm re recently just finished reading um, Atomic Habits and it all all breaks that down. It's like that incremental little little choices and it's the, the hard choice that get the flourishing results and the easy ones that just get existing. A quote I heard, it says, if you want to be a, a mayor, a... Um, conductor, uh, politician, whatever you want to be, and your your punishment for wanting to be that, you'll become that. Mm -hmm. And equally, mm -hmm. your punishment equally. for not wanting to be anything is that you don't become anything. Mm -hmm. So you're like, okay, that's heavy. And to to go into the realm of of play and and breaking that down and unpacking a bit, what I try to convey to parents and families is that we want to create environments because in, environments will create behavior and we've kind of missed missed that a lot but we all know it's true it's like that relationship what the 
what the heart's always known to be true, you kind of need a sentence sometimes to plonk it in the head and go, that makes sense. Like, for example, you go into a restaurant and the lights are bright and it's loud and you're going to last two seconds in there and you want to get out of there, opposed to a nice restaurant where you can sit, you can actually hear each other. The light's nice. It's not hectic. We know environments create behaviour. But we kind of just surrender and we we do it in our home, but we why, why don't we think it on a bigger scale, like people just defaulting into the should of neighbourhoods where there's no interaction and you have to drive everywhere and it doesn't seem to be community driven in a lot of circumstances where is that loss where have we lost that so you're arguing for that the environment creates behavior yep um, you know that i go with that along with that but um to a certain extent because there's mm. uh, the power of will um so let's say for example you walk down um yeah let's say south bank right um and you say oh okay this is the way for walking here yeah uh, but then you come up with your skateboard and you use every curb and things which is not intended to be skated on but yeah the, the, your willpower for play is there so you're actually um <laughs> you know uh, changing through your behavior that environment yeah. it's a designed intent so it's always i think it goes a long way and it has something to do with conscious overwriting a certain um Trans, um, transgressive forms of behavior um, and when you do that there's a sense of consciousness behind it uh, but also in play and that is the beauty of play it's such a broad ambiguous concept um, that you uh, find nurturing joyfulness within that and that's a powerful tool which is a life giving force what, what sparked your interest in play what from doing it from the urban standpoint ur urban planning design and then you found yourself hmm. in the play realm what was that oh well you know you can either go with the albert einstein quote you know play is the highest form yeah. of research um play is, uh, or the yeah. whole universe is at play right um and um, if you if you use that as a almost as a life philosophy um you know all what we're experiencing is yeah. just full of wonder um and you have the opportunity to yeah. be open to that wonder in your everyday life and play is a great window to yeah. look at the world. And it physically opens up our view. And it physically opens up our view. Oh, from the physiological standpoint, it makes hmm. perfect sense when you, when you delve into like the fulfillment it brings. Something I've been doing recently that people laugh at me instead of saying, oh, thanks so much when I leave. I was like, remember, I'm telling people, remember to have fun. The reaction mm. I get from like the people at like service stations or any interactions, remember to have fun. They always like, <laughs> yeah, good one. What? But isn't it just the base of I'm glad like, you do existence? Like, why are we doing this exactly. otherwise? And I understand. Mm -hmm. And I'm not the one like, let's be happy all the time. That's not, that's not real. No, that's not, that's not, no, that's not real. And, and that's, a, that's yeah. part of life. It's a dynamic, right? So what you want to come from a space of genuine yeah. uh, joy. And I think um, it's the same thing with, with happiness, right? Happiness is such an elusive concept. Um, and you always in a fleeting moment, you will have it. And then it, it ceases to exist. And that's almost, that's why I always prefer yeah. to use the term well-being. There's a constant mm. nice undercurrent which keeps you steadily flowing. And out of that, you can have these sparks, you know, coming out of it. And that creates a dynamic. So uh, the baseline of this, you know, nice yeah. flow being well, that's where we want to be. And uh, not being so violent in yeah. spiking up and seeking happiness yeah. and then going plummeting yeah, into when, depression. Yeah, when we highlight the importance yeah, of when, when highlight happiness and that's the expectation of I should be, should be, the culture of the should, and mm -hmm. I should be happy. The other polarizing nature of that is what's the opposite? Because if I'm not one, I'm the other. So what about the middle ground? What about joy? What about reflection? <laughs> what about all these things? They're not necessarily happiness. It doesn't mean they're bad or depressed or depraved or terrible or bad. Like it's you are where you are and that's okay. Yeah. And coming back to your previous question, yeah, yeah. which I hence that to half of it yeah. is to the mm. uh, new suburbs, right? So you can arguably you know, say, uh, yeah, well, we're creating now um, planned master plan yes. designed products 
which tick yeah. all the boxes, let's say, you know, it's best case scenario, follow all of the guidelines. You have a nice open space system in there. You have um, well-designed playgrounds or play spaces, so to speak. Um, and um, you, everybody has their, you know, backyard and um, freestanding building, yeah. the dream, you know, they're seeking to have there. Um, but uh, there's something which is inherently socially broken. Um, that's something the intangible. And play, from my understanding, brings that in. Um, and then you can, let's say, look into an older, more established suburb, probably a few houses, don't have necessarily the good open space system, um, maybe have just a footpath or even no footpath. But then um, for some reason, there are a lot of kids playing on the streets, right? So then you think, so what is the story here? What is going on here? Um, and that brings it back to my earlier comment, with, which, uh, which referred to the word within the world. What kind of conditions, nurturing conditions were involved here to create a socially constructed world within the world which yeah. facilitates it? And that's yeah. where we have to pay attention. Yeah. And that's unfortunately because we're in the system geared towards paying attention to materiality. We lost that focus. And play is a great opener. If you want to understand life and possibility, yeah. understand play. Yeah. And it seems like we've created a culture of resourcing our satisfaction or resourcing our existence we need to have this thing that injects into us to make it feasible or, or make it any worthwhile and i know it's very <laughs> we're going to the other end of the scale but in the end you can't take it with you no. you know you can have all of these trophies it's not going to matter and what about that joy along the way and that's the art of living. There's a great French philosopher, which I always use in my, some of my lectures, is Henri Lefebvre. Um, he's a Marxist, but, um, but he touches on and there is this subtle idealism in yeah. him. Yeah? Uh, and he described that concept, the oeuvre. So this is uh, the state of existence when life becomes art. Mm. Yeah? Uh, it's a higher state of existence, so yeah. to speak. Um, but uh, if you say play is... The, the art yeah. of existence. Yeah. So then that is essentially the oeuvre. And if we can create and facilitate conditions where not just you or me, but everybody can uh, yeah. achieve within that oeuvre within external that material external material world, which is not equally distributed yeah. to everyone, but everybody has that yeah. possibility. And um, why do we deny that? Why do we have generations of adults which literally forgotten how yeah. to play. Yeah. I mean, how do they want to move and have find joy in life if they have yeah. not yeah. found that spark? Or perhaps maybe in a formalized way, let's say, you know, with sports mm. or so, you know, they're dedicating it to a fraction of time as part of their yeah. weekly routine. That's when they're allowed yeah. to have play. But what on earth led to that kind of condition where we created a system which just allows us to you know be joyful in yeah. a certain moment in what do you think it is what is the contributor to that oh i have some thoughts about it you know, probably because uh, i'm using a lot of these post-marxist theory it helps me to understand uh, that in the in the contemporary conditions of the markets yeah. how it all works and how we commodify yeah. and enable then products like these new suburbs right so it's it's really that we've um uh, to, a, to an extent, on a larger scale, if you generalize, we're uh, society probably we lost a bit the way. Yeah. <laughs> We've we drifted too much into materiality. I always say we lost the materiality, um, and uh, you, each one can ask itself like, how far do we identify with material things? Mm. There, um, there's nothing wrong with them. You know, you can enjoy you know a nice experience and all this, uh, but the thing is not to get too close to attached. And that's the art of yeah. play in life, right? You enjoy for whatever it is. And when you, you know, played enough with it, then yeah. you're moving on. So they're not no yeah. hard feelings. Yeah. And that's the beauty about children. Often, in most cases, they're very forgiving. They're, of, of course, there's a dark yeah. side of play when they're rough together, but then they learn something mm. about life. So the early phases when they negotiate the rules for life, right? Um, everything is ambiguous, open, and you co-created uh, to an extent because, of course, they have been genetically imprinted in certain yeah. programs of how to make sense of the world. But um, it, in the earlier stages, they're much more open. Um, and that's the beauty of it. So if you understand how children play, 
you become more attuned to the possibilities of life if you choose to give them space and time. And it reminds me of that story of Picasso walking through the square. The lady says, draw me a picture. He does a scribble. He says, what is this? A child could do this. He says, it's taken me 30 years of practice to be able to do it, be act like a child and to draw like mm -hmm. a child. Because it's like that realm, what you're saying, it's the play aspect. And, you know, play for me is about, the process and play in general so it's not not for me personally but um play about the process not the outcome and mm. the culture is is completely <laughs> reversing that and additionally the being not the doing so what do you do how are you i'm oh, so busy oh, i'm mm. sorry yeah. i want to say sorry about that there's a default what what why it's and it's held on a mantle and we, we wear it as a trophy how are you oh busy what, what are you doing for you? Oh, no time for myself. Hmm. And it's fleeting in, in the scheme of things, like not to get morbid again. We're here for a split second. Mm -hmm. And that comes back down to the way of how we designed this world within the world through um, uh, dialectics or you say through, you know, black mm. and white thinking, right? I, I just give you an idea from, from my last, from the book, what I'm... Yes, I'm so excited so, about so that. Yeah, um, tell, tell me, me. How long? It's been a long, how long has it been? Process. What, four yeah. years? Five years and in making? On a, just out of my sheer interest, because I have the aspirations to write a book. And I have the aspirations to study in an academic type of way like you are, but realistically, <laughs> I know that's not going to happen. <laughs> but I admire the fact that there's people like you doing it. And when, in regards to reading a book, how, how many hours a week? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's largely based yeah. on my PhD, yeah. so <laughs> I could utilize yeah. big chunks of it. But I think again, like it comes back down to this process. What do you like? What do you enjoy? The product or the yeah. process? I like and I quite like the yes. process. So you know, a couple of hours every day. So I just literally, yeah. you know, write something out of my brain that I can relax. Yeah. yeah, so that's awesome. <laughs> Um, and and but but the interesting thing is because I'm focusing on public yes. space to understand play, and there is something which gives me hope to society, because often what we are conditioned in how the, we base the rules for the system is that we live in this endless world of competition, mm. right? Yeah. Everybody needs to compete yeah. here in this marketplace. If you want to go for bigger tenders, it's all yeah. about competition, and it's an efficiency measure, performative. Yeah. Um, you know then. Yeah, uh, bidding and all this. So, um, but what I found is when people go their way every day, and um, I put myself into a public space yeah. in Canberra, yeah. Garima Place, uh, for more than a week, um, every day from very early morning till very late, and I was sitting there and looking at people, right? So I, I created this massive yeah. data set of how people, and then um, to a degree, it's reductionist because I'm just looking at play from my yeah. perception view, but actually I could categorize it, what kind of play occurs. And then um, I, I got a bit of an understanding what type of play activities do happen yeah. most. So I use some of these uh, concepts from other um, thinkers out there. For, uh, Roger Calloy is one of them. And he distinguished between four types of play, uh, which is vertigo, you know, twisting, shaping, turning around, you know, um, swinging, yeah. for example. Um, then there is um, uh, competition. Uh, no, don't need any you know, explaining. Um, then there is uh, simulation. Um, so when you actually engage in um, dreaming um, and uh, like, you know, we're, we're, cook, we're creating, we're pretending that this table is actually a massive canvas. What I found out is actually that from all these four forms of play is that uh, competition is the least one which people most uh, engage in as part of their everyday life in public yeah. spaces. So they're not, they don't, they're not intrinsically motivated to go after it. No, no, no. No, that is uh, from, I don't know, I looked into a thousand instances of, of play yeah. as part of that yeah. throughout yeah. the week, yeah. And most people um, engage in any other form yeah. except play yeah. uh, for competition. And uh, then shows me something. Maybe it's because we have dedicated spaces, formalized spaces yeah. where we do that. Yeah. Uh, or it's simply not part of our everyday life yeah. existence. This is an artificially created one. And then I looked further into that question of mm. competition because it sparked my curiosity you know, try to understand the meaning behind it is um that there's nothing wrong with competition yeah. Yeah. but the thing is 
what probably we have perhaps not well understood in our society. It's about um, competition within yourself. How if you are willing voluntarily through play, play is a voluntary activity. If you want to push yourself to set a goal, then you can do in self-competition with yes. yourself, but never compete against another yeah. person because each one of us uh, is a product or in the process uh, of coming from a different world within yes. the world and so had different conditions which made them who they are in this moment in yeah. time. So be, by understanding that diversity of life, why, I mean, yeah, there there's mm. difference. And maybe whatever difference their offer lends itself better to a different other condition. But at the end, um, setting up entire societies based on peer-to-peer -peer competition is actually ripping us apart in yeah. the long run rather than actually creating this. And I'm not saying it's not about originality. Or the originality uh, occurs through the creative spirit which sits in each one of us. Internally, when you on self, yourself, internally, not against exactly. each other. Exactly. No, and then yeah. through, com uh, through collaboration. Mm. You elevate yes. that because, and you find it as a connecting principle. Uh, what makes us yeah. actually human is we are a yeah. social species, and through competition we play that in a small scale, but we play against each other, and this is a, a, a form yeah, of yeah. game, of course. But um, I think it's in the long run a pretty self. Yeah, and we'll we'll look at the result of like a, such a competitive environment. Like look at people's well-being under that. Mm -hmm. Look at the compare culture. Look at the um, impact of social media with this mm -hmm. fake mirror filter mm -hmm. in front of you. It's having a there's we're removing the experience from self completely, and that's what I try to encourage in not a similar way within interactions in play. So when it comes to an educated parent, saying you don't need to dictate their goals, support them to achieve their own. Nothing's more satisfying to someone engaged in play to achieve their own goals, not yours, not the other person's. Mm -hmm. And then every, all of the well-being in it. And you've articulated it beautifully, as you always do, is that you've created that internal self. You're, you're contributing to internal identity. You're contributing to like the self-worth, the values, the accomplishment, the identity of self and the values around you. Um, to go back to your observations around playing competitive nature and no one the, generally not gravitating towards it, do you think that is a product of there being so much competition in community, in the environment around them, that when they're intrinsically motivated to play, they're like, I'm not even going to play, go into that realm because mm. I get enough. <laughs> I mean, it would be good, interesting to carry out some further research on that, I must say. Um, but but um, generally, I would say oh, we are, as a society, create certain conditions which we favor certain yes. behaviors, right? So if we are actually co-producing uh, or co-produced over so many years a system which favors and values competition, mm -hmm. Uh, as a driving force, then uh, of course uh, other parts being left behind, um, and um, we are also if we are becoming in our process, we're always becoming these products of these environments. So how far are we are programmed or ground conditioned to operate that? Why? Because we have normalized that yeah. concept, uh, that we do not even question that narrative uh, or that concept as society. Why should we? take that this is the way how everything is but no it doesn't the thing is if you step out of um the self in that sense and um observe life from a remote distance from a calm point of view you you will see how this kind of yeah. uh, sense of madness actually yeah. uh, reveals yeah. itself yeah and the the way of how we design environments is i think uh, in, to a degree a good, really good reflection of our collective values yeah. Yeah, and also the way of how we are, um, and, yeah, self-perceiving ourselves yeah. in 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 materiality yeah. and giving. And us you've just given me some clarity on a question I ask myself all the time. I go out, I travel travel a lot and go out to semi-rural to rural communities. And I'm going out there and I look over to the right, and there's a whole housing estate hmm. surrounded by farmland, surrounded by beautiful amounts of land, and the gutters are almost touching. And I just think, why why on earth would anyone want to come all the way out to the countryside to live on top of a person? But when you look at that collective mindset, the collective value, 
Like that's it. They're mm. going out there because, oh, I can, that means I've had, can have this house. Meanwhile, they're not considering the impact on their children, the impact on their own health, the impact of not being able to walk to the shop. Another great statistic I heard your reference was, which I was amazed about, was the distance to shops and other infrastructure mm. in Australia, like a huge percentage is like a kilometre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 30% under kilometre and 50% under five or something. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Our default in Australia is that, oh, we have to drive because everything's so far apart. You don't have to, yeah. you don't want to. Depends actually how we make do and, you know, yeah. and co-create. And we're looking at Germany and the other European countries that have the culture of transport on bikes or out there, probably traveling the same distance that we are. I mean, you know, my commutes were 12 kilometers when last time I was in Germany. So one way on the bike, but beautifully through the landscape, yeah. right? So through, uh, from my town, you know, through yeah. fields and forests all the way to my work to go into your role now let's flash forward um can you just break down your role at university now for our listeners oh um i'm at uh, i'm lecturing in within landscape architecture at the moment um and keep in mind i have a background in urban design and planning um that and i'm, I'm putting my energy into two and uh, three types of units one was health and well-being um, and how we can create landscape for well-being. Um, the, the second one was uh, I, because I've been doing a lot of work uh, transcending global north, so to say, and global south, um, so countries yeah. in Africa, yeah. Southeast Asia and so on, um, where we embedded some of these theories yeah. for change. Uh, what I said, like how we really socially create this world within the world and then out of um, dreams, particularly working with young people, how we can utilize their dreams and uh, translate them into some tangible outcomes how we can co-create better outcomes for a community and so we we applied that in Sierra Leone and uh, received overwhelmingly successful results and that wasn't celebrated at some of the UN Habitat conferences so that was was really um, really heartwarming breakthrough but it it confirmed one thing that we are if we are willing to be open-minded to re-educate ourselves and um, carefully willing to listen deep listen Mm. to each other we have the chance to really um, co-create a different kind of future and renegotiate what we are becoming the the word you've mentioned a few times there co-create so can you break that down like say i know it's it's to break it down in a broad sense there's a podcast but um in the context of um supporting African towns mm. and, and children in Africa. What does that co-create mm. relationship look like? Well, so let's say start from your and my work um, within the world. So uh, we are, you know, quite privileged, you know, mm. middle-aged males, you know, standard. Um, but And we're, um, yeah, we really have a quite a privileged life. So uh, our dreams might be very different to yeah. Um, somebody who has not had that privilege so when you go into um, these communities in africa it was important that we um, just work with on on equal eye level and uh, give way to their dreams it's not about our dreams which we're imposing in a colonial sense onto a different society Mm -hmm. and coming and saying now because we were living in so material wealth and we ticked a lot of health parameters you need to do have that now too so we took that arrogance aside and uh, applied quite this decolonial way of thinking at it and um and so that means that's all about you and it's in fact actually not about each and one of you individually it's about what you can dream together mm. and that is a powerful message yeah. because um you have to ne- negotiate through all your differences what is worthwhile what comes back down to this question of mattering what really matters not just to you individually mm. but uh, to a whole bunch of people yeah and um, that is the that is the core to co-creation by agreeing uh, through democratic processes yeah. of what is matter worthwhile uh, mm. keeping. Agreeing about a need, not a want. Exactly, and I think that's where we have to be really careful in the way of we choosing language. Uh, often we are ending up in these wants, and that is working with desires. Yes. Um, and there's nothing wrong with desire, as I mentioned before. However, the way of how we are um, interpreting and how we're utilizing that concept to justify certain narratives in society is concerning. Yeah. So um, 
given that we are, let's say, in built environment landscape, um, being uh, so to a degree from a uh, power concept perspective, our job is to create meaning, which means we're working with visuals and desires. Yeah. So we, we seduce people into these kind of worlds which we are sharing with yeah. them. Um, so that's to a degree the success of our jobs, right? Um, but being conscious of that and saying, this is not about what we bring to the table. We are the facilitators yeah. and we're actually conscious about that. So we are actually being, we're paradigming a new way of existence. So therefore this is more about you. Yeah. And the more we actually empower you to co-create, which works with openness and ambiguity, you don't know where the process ends up with, yeah. but it, it enables an environment for trust. And again, comes back to life-giving forces, yeah. uh, which is very much, we arguably, we play with them together yeah. at uh, equal eye level and then negotiate a way forward, which is beneficial not just to one, but to a collective. That's where identity comes from, mm. identity in relationship. Is that correct? Could those things be summed up as relationships as well? Like you're, you're, um, within your, the social construct, that could be a relationship. And then your relationship with the broader world. Mm. Just trying to put it into a, a, a term that people mm. can maybe relate to. And then you're creating environments within environments mm. from a tangible sense. Precisely. It's very relational. Very, very, I mean, it's interesting for how we, and I had that conversation with my students a couple of weeks ago uh, around space and time. Yeah. Yes. So it's like very deeply ones. philosophical. But um, when you come back, it's, and um, there's another uh, great um, writer, um, David Harvey, and he had a big go at space and time defining. And um, what is really insight and worth probably keeping in mind and uh, where we position ourselves and how we understand space and time. Yeah. So space, for example, you can take three approaches from that. The first one is the abstract realm of space. Yeah. Mm. So we think there is a measurable confidence like in the, the room where we're sitting in or where the listener is sitting in. So you can actually apply a measurement, a tool, that's something concrete, solid, yeah. it's abstract. You know, we can create a plan and then we put it in and then it's there. So this is one form of space. Yeah. There's a second form of space, which is actually the relativity, sp uh, relative space, right? Yeah. And it comes from Albert Einstein. So let's say when we're, uh, you, you live down here in the Gold Coast, I'm a company in Brisbane, so it takes me an hour to get here. If I actually choose to walk from my work to, um, uh, to my home it takes me 45 minutes so geographies of time play a big important part yeah. how much space you bridge in order to um create a world within the world yeah. yeah so that creates more resources if you live further away but you also have time let's say you take a high-speed train where you can compress that space time yeah yeah um so and then there's of course a third space what you just touched on that was the relational space mm. and that is a space of dreams where memories sit uh, all this intangible yeah. And arguably you can um, superimpose that on to uh, these other two spaces. Mm. And that creates a sense of messiness, right? Um, I, and probably when you have to ask me uh, which space is the real, the right space, like if you think about black and white, and it's like, no, probably they all work together. Yeah. But that creates this messy and complexity around it. And yeah. if we work with openness and complexity, why on earth are we trying to put it into one of these boxes? Yeah. Why are we as the individuals are conditioned to always think about this is absolute must, must be absolute. Yeah. Why don't we let it open be and choosing again what matters within yeah. these different yeah. conceptions of time space, yeah, yeah. or space time. Yeah. And look at children in their exploration of environments and play. They they use the tangible mm -hmm. space through absorption of their senses to gather an understanding of the intangible. Precisely the right. huge disconnect I observe time and time again is where we're trying to teach children from the intangible place about tangible things like care for the environment. And the child goes, where is it? And they go, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What's in it? Everything. And poor Alex, a four-year-old, is going, what, what on earth are you talking about? Yeah. Instead of just exploring and experiencing the environment and that being, I like the world, that world mm -hmm. is a representation of that. And, you know, another one is when they're trying to teach social interactions. Oh, Alex, don't go in James's space. <laughs> He's looking so perplexed. Come, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. I can't see it, touch it, anything. Now, when is there's that confusion mm -hmm. around identity mm -hmm. in space, relationships as well? And um, that kind of adult power 
unbalance, right? When yeah. we're saying what is right, what is wrong, uh, shapes these small spirits already uh, yeah. and impacts their life in quite traumatic way. Because often we don't even think about it because we, we, we're used to it. It is the world how how we become to learn to exist in. Yeah. But um, you know, these are like you know clean sheets of paper. You yeah. know, they are beautiful, full human beings. And we are saying you are not a full human being mm. because you did not have these experiences what we had. So we have to burn you now into the shape you in this past yeah. because this is a way of how we yeah. are existing. But the thing is, when you look around and see the, the violence and all this <laughs> physically and spiritually <laughs> around ourselves, we ask ourselves, like, hmm, why are we doing this to them? Yeah. And, and why are we recreating children in a model of ourselves which are so flawed in ourselves? Oh, yeah. You know, I understand we are flawed and, and that's that's a part of life. Fact, I'm not, yeah. No one's, you don't, okay, let's get someone perfect to teach all the children. Good luck. I'm not saying that. But all I'm saying is why are we teaching our, our own bad habits mm. and our own lacking understanding? Mm. And. I mean, f from a parent perspective, to protect them, you know, everybody, I would say, uh, does with a good intention, do their very best to raise a child. Yes. 100%. Without saying. Yeah, yeah. And, but it always, and that comes back to the way of our, how we constructed the social words within the world, because they had a coming out of a social word constructed, which was full with trauma. Yeah. So they are, have been impacted um, of their life to condition within certain narrow boundaries. Yeah. And so within these boundaries, they're doing their very best. Um, but I'm not saying that we can co-create a very different future. And um, that's where I found uh, ambiguous concepts, uh, invisible concepts, or concepts which you can't grasp and confine mm. are the really the transformative ones because they can elevate our spirit in that sense mm. and give us these forces of how we can actually have a conversation and uh, escape that. So, for example, my urban lovability concept, yeah. right? Um, if um, love is intangible... And I'm not saying the physical love here. Like I'm, I'm, I'm talking about more the compassion type of love. Mm. So where you are open and willing to share something with yeah. another person, knowing or not knowing, doesn't matter. But there is something you're happy to, willing to give a compromise, uh, to make a contribution. So if you give that contribution, that is an, an, an um, connecting principle. For example... Um, yeah, I have plenty of water, you are very thirsty, I have abundance, of course I'm sharing, no mm. worries, right? So um, when it becomes scarce, then it comes a different negotiating part, but then even then when you share, there's more beauty in that because together we're stronger, yeah. but it needs a certain actualization around that. So, and, and if people have been deprived of a lot of these experiences, how could they know any different? Uh, but often when you show, no matter what kind of instances, uh, kindness from a compassionate point of view, that can be a very powerful transformer and joy and play. You will see when you want to learn about how this lovability works, look at children playing with each other. Yes, there might be, you know, we're competing and saying this is mine. So because yeah. the ego is full in its development, but often they're very forgiving. They don't, they, they have a fight and five minutes later they go apart and then five and 10 minutes later they're starting from scratch again. Yeah. You, adults don't do that. No. I know in 1984 we had a conversation and you were really yeah. insulting me. So therefore, I did not talk to you today. How dare you, culture. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, precisely right. But so it doesn't happen overnight. So again, yeah. it comes back down to this idea of uh, becoming. It's a process, as you so eloquently mm. elaborated on earlier. And it is a question of mattering um, and of values again. And unfortunately, I think we do not create enough time in space yeah. to have these kind of quality discourses around what really matters. Um, there was an opportunity that perhaps the window is still open since we COVID um, is hitting all our mm. societies. People are contained at home. They can, they're deprived of social connections. Yeah. Um, we all agreeing a digital world is simply not the same yeah. as it is as uh, true face to face. Yeah. As many of our, um, you know, um, um, yeah, fellow citizens actually yeah. experiencing at the moment down yeah. in Melbourne or Sydney, yeah. this is where it's Victoria, so on. Um, and uh, I hope when they come out of the lockdown that um, they take the time to really yeah. reconsider some of their yeah, positions. The brilliant thing about, if you could say anything brilliant about the a pandemic would be that 
it is prompting that reflection on wants mm. versus needs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What do I actually need here? Yeah. And the amount of people having a career change, the amount of people saying, actually, I don't need to go work in an office in the middle of the city. Mm-hmm. And businesses going, mm-hmm. actually, we don't need that. Mm. We just wanted it because mm-hmm. it was just what we've always done. So there's great opportunity. And um, a mutual friend of ours, Steve Kanowski, mm. um, taking that opportunity to say, well, I've got a great opportunity to adapt and create some wicked big change at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And I've spoken to other schools and, and promoted the same concept of saying, well, isn't now the perfect time for change? You're mm-hmm. not going to have not everyone. So everyone's a bit jumbled up. Everyone's a bit uncertain. And like, yep. let's act now. Yeah. Um, in that word that pops up, I've got my notes here and I've written it a few times, a certain versus uncertainty. Mm. Is that what's driving our um, social constructs and our environmental um, living? Is this need for certainty? It's just a, it's just a word that keeps popping up mm. for me recently. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, here again, we, we're starting with uh, working with dialectics, yes. so, so yeah, dualism, yeah, right? Mm. Um, and um, and I'm a fan of always creating new knowledge, um, which actually overrides dialectics, dialectics now. Yeah. So I mean, it's a good starting point because yeah. it shows you where the tension is, right? Mm. And uh, as if that pops up in your life at the moment, in your social world within the world, mm. um, you you see there is um, there's some tension going on at the moment, yeah. and time. To, um, if you experience this tension, this is time to put energy into it and have this conversation. So um, certainty is often um, that um, masking itself under comfort. Mm. But certainty is also, um, which is good for probably periods of time to rest and rebalance yeah. before you go out and have your next joyful endeavor. Yeah. So <laughs> when you start play another play activity, yeah. so to speak. Um, and that's when you become uncertain, where you go with trust into the world uh, and co-create something different. Yeah. Um, of course, uh, it's a balancing approach. You need to have time for certainty. Let's say, you know, I, for certain, I need my good eight hours sleep because then mm. my brain function is optimal mm. uh, next morning. So I'm grateful if I can get that happening. Uh, but from there, I let myself every day is a new day. I'm born every day in that sense. Yeah. And then I give myself into this uncertainty mm. and see how I'm journeying through this day. So yeah. um, in so it's more a matter of how you use this concept to shift a paradigm. So what kind of paradigm do you want to exist in? Mm. So I can come, you know, again, my essentialist, existentialist argument. Um, do you want to exist within certainty, which I can, if you give it too much energy, can put you into stagnation and into and corners you because mm. it, it masks life. It's not yeah. it's not feeling alive. Mm. Uh, when you play, for example, you you engage in vertigo, twisting all this. Boy, you quickly feel alive because your physical body is like you know pumping blood and all sorts yeah. of things. If I would actually be certain, and I would sit in the chair all day, my my butt keeps pumping slowly, yeah, yeah. slowly, but I see life passing in front mm. of my eyes instead of actively engaging in it. Yeah. But it's all about the balance, and that's why again, uh, I think we can depart here from uh, the dualism. And think about, again, between um, what brings us together. I mean, I probably I put that to you. What do you yeah. think? What brings certainty, uncertainty? What holds it together? What's an umbrella term which can yeah. reconcile with it? Yeah, it, come, it comes down to that. What it, what's the meaning of that word to you, doesn't it? Like you mentioned at the start there. Mm. So. But if you use experience... Um, yeah. Of course, there's just different, exper- different experiences, right? Yeah. Some experiences are more certain. Yeah. Have a higher probability to occur mm. than others, right? Yeah. Mm. Or percep- it's just perception. Oh, and perception is also quite ambiguous. Yeah. Right? Because um, my, my sense of sight is not as good as yours. Yeah. So I perceive things differently than you. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So like even within both us sitting in this room, you know, my word within the world is looking at you and i see you here nice wooden panels behind yeah. you and you see myself from a different angle so yeah. you're again having a perception of this world yeah. from a d- different angle so yeah. but the thing is the more we all overlaying and uh, looking at us ourselves we actually there's uh, some common shared raw in it and that is what uh, makes it real yeah. yeah i think we had a conversation about one time was like it's not based on your experience 
our relationship using our senses to talk. It's not your experience isn't real, mine experience isn't real. It's actually what's happening between this space, which is actually mm. the real. Mm. When we had that chat, I was like, oh, I think I just broke my brain. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I no, seem to good. frequently get that feedback lately. Almost no. say the same. Um, <laughs> it's good. Yeah. It elevates and articulates. And we need to have these conversations because it's important. Otherwise, you're just this passenger. Mm. You're just a subject of what you've accepted. Mm. Um, when it comes to your students, as you mentioned there, and they're moving into the realm of landscape architecture when they graduate and they leave what do you want them to take from their years at university into being a landscape architect oh probably criticality how so oh well in every respect right so we work in landscape architects work at all scales right so mm. they work on the big issues the climate change issue uh, all the way down to garden design right yeah um and um it, and what I probably, if I can express a wish to them, is actually that they never lose the um, sense of play, <laughs> to play around with concept and question whatever they encounter, because imagination um, is more valuable than any kind of learned knowledge. Yeah. And criticality is a way of looking at the world through a playful window, right? Mm. And uh, a window which allows for the imagination to occur. Thought, of course, is useful as a tool because it helps you to um, deconstruct a certain way and understand where the tension points are. But um, to be honest, even every theory is what we call reductionist. It's a reduced way of understanding things. That's why we have in theories out yeah. there. But um, if you want to experience life in its fullest, that goes beyond language. Mm. And play is, again, once more a very powerful concept because if you are existing in a playful state and you're experiencing the world as is through all the senses, um, that is more than anyone can, you know, yeah. transcribe to or, you know, or translate to. It's just the way of how existing. So you're embodying a different paradigm in that sense. Yeah. And when as an adult have we felt that sense of pure joy and fulfillment that you get as a child mm. where all aspects of your your life feel joyous mm. and it's completely embodied mm. Like mm. when you reflect on it and then you reflect how your body feels you're head to toe mm -hmm. everything encapsulated mm -hmm. um your book when it's when is it going to be released well um I, I submitted it so it hopefully depends how long the editors take i think early next year yeah, yeah. Um, transforming public space through play. I'm excited about that. Thanks. That's so exciting. Um, what What do you hope people to? Who do you want to read it? What do you want them to get out of it? Well, thanks for asking. Um, first of all, I'm going to be just happy when it, that thing is done. <laughs> <laughs> um, despite of the fact, actually, I do did enjoy the process of creating it. But um, again, it's it probably, it's probably why you want it done because you're like, well. The joy is gone now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I finished finish next thing. It, yeah. yeah, so I'm thinking about the next project, right? Um, yeah, but uh, it's targeted uh, for anybody who is um, willing to open the window of play. Yeah, and understand whatever we can from a professional context um, see in the world. So. Uh, it's 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 an awareness tool. It's a framework in yeah. there. It's literally the development of a, what I call the city play framework. Yeah. How we can under, un, understand public spaces in dense urban centers yeah. through the window of play. Yeah. And uh, and uh, and see the full possibilities and potential a particular um, space, confined space, or whatever is in the brief holds for life giving forces. Yeah. And um, that often overrides functional designs. And uh, also uh, almost can be applied as a um, mitigating effect before you come in as a designer and you say you get an open new brief and you get a tabula rasa approach. You start a whole from scratch mm -hmm. from for the site. I said, no, understand life first. And if you want to understand the most complex part of life, study the play activities in that space. Yeah. And if you gain an, an, that understanding, you see how you can gently modify the conditions to nurture that more yeah. rather than saying let's take it all out and then we put um, our design 
handing, uh, thinking head on and because I envisioned that and um, then this yeah. will have to work for everyone, yeah. which is often doesn't. Yeah. Just don't present the resource. <laughs> There's a resource. Here you go. This is for you to do in, mm. not be in, just do in. Mm -hmm. Doing, yeah. Do you want to, can you tell us Urban Synergies? It's your little baby, mm. so to speak. You, what what is, what is it about? I know what it's about. I've, I've like read your documents on park assessments and things, and they're great. And we get very excited about them and how you break it down. Thanks. Yeah, it was my passion project. Um, it's been more than seven years now. Um, I mean, we kept it always very small, informal, and boutique, mm. uh, rather than um, making it a big thing. So, because we used it as a vehicle, as a social entrepreneurship model. Yeah. To to. Um, bring difference into being so yeah um and focusing on really what mattered to everybody who was part of the network and um a big part of it was a focus on well-being for children yeah um so we started and did um, a lot of um, work with um, including the assessment sheet of how we assess play value uh, of a particular play space um And um, there were some of these yeah, products that came out of this journey where we helped to facilitate transformative change in that sense. So in, in the Canberra context, um, in that sense, we, you know, we did big um, shaping space for Gen Z Forum where we said we want to create um, child and youth-friendly environments for the whole city. So how do we do that? How can we become, work with this uncertainty and bring certainty into yeah. it? So this because <laughs> I play with it. Um, And um, then, of course, the power of co-creation kicked in and uh, a whole set of principles and strategies came out of that process and the government started then to action that and we were a part of that um, journey onwards. And, and, um, and, you know, as often it's an open-ended process and dynamic, but yeah. um, we pushed, let's say, we, we, we did make a contribution to the ACT context in that way forward, for yep. example. I mean, we did, of course, do more work in, in Africa and in Europe, but yeah. Um, yeah. What excites you most about the future of landscape architecture and play? Well, the thing is, I think what the pandemic has shown is um, um, the value of open public spaces mm. for well-being, for health and well-being for the broader population, no matter where you live. Yep. If you're in a, in a suburban context, you know, Uh, why, uh, during the way of um, the park's infrastructure were closed because you're yeah. not allowed to touch them, you're not allowed to touch playground equipment, but uh, you were able to walk, right? Mm. So I, I found, um, and I've written a, with, a, with another dear colleague of mine a paper around that where we observed what happened here yeah. in Australia. I like the title. Oh, you did? share that? <laughs> oh, yeah, please. Uh, you go. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, it was titled uh, On the Life and Death of, <laughs> of Public Space During COVID-19 yeah, yeah, yeah. in Australia. Um, and uh, so we, we just had a con conditioned eye for that and looked around what happened during this uh, first phase of lockdown in, in Australia. And, and what we found is uh, that was a temporarily an opening where everybody opened that window to paradigm a different set of existence, which escaped commodification, if, if I'm going to come back to my Marxist thinking, is um, commodification in the sense you do not engage with products. You have no other choice but to co-create mm. with people next to you yeah. and become very creative to um, um, co-create spaces where you can share togetherness. Uh, for example, that means um, people in their front yards had their dinner picnics out there. And then you could see people walking by. You could not get close, but at least you got some kind of, you created temporary so, a social space, yeah. so to speak, where you actually invited and had social connection, so social encounters to a degree. Um, and, or you walked around and you, what you saw with all these children doing all these chalk drawings on the street, you know, yeah. here we go the oeuvre in the making yeah um and uh, because people were hyper localized yeah forcefully mm. but uh, it created that opening for a time and uh, created this condition that for reflection um and um, a time for questioning yourself what really matters to you in life yeah 100 100 and we'll put the link to that in the show oh, notes for nice. the listeners to read because it's a good read um and we any anywhere else our listeners want to find out more information about your work where can they find you i think the search engines uh, the web has it all eh? yeah <laughs> and i'll also put the i'll just put the link into the ted talk and sure, some thanks. links to your stuff Appreciate as well it. but 
Um, thank you so much for joining us today on Play It Forward, but also thank you on a personal level. You always inspire me to not just think bigger but think deeper, and I think that's one of the most valuable things we can take into our daily existence and having impact on children's lives and our community's lives and can't wait to continue to work with you at the AIP and have amazing impact and once we get a bit more projects together under the belt with AIP and get in the field a bit more I'd love to have you back on and we can discuss like more action-based community-inspired stuff happening so thank you for having me I'm grateful and you know all power to you (laughs) (laughs) thanks so much Thank you for joining us on another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. If that didn't get you thinking deeper and bigger, nothing will. Thanks for joining us and I look forward to you joining us again soon on another Play It Forward Worthy podcast.